Listening Before Acting, a conversation with Dr. Phil Amerson, President Emeritus of Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, and Indiana Bishop Julius Tremble, here on episode number 34 of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. But a, a guy from Southern Illinois who was a Klan member started worshiping with us. And uh, it was an ecumenical service. Everybody was welcome. We would end with communion. And we would have an offering by having a basket on the table up by the communion. Uh, and people would put in things. Children would bring drawings. People would bring bread they'd bake. They, they might put in a little money. And Warren, the young man who was a member of the Klan, one uh, after he attended maybe two months, came and I heard him put something in the basket and it was heavy thud and I took the offering back to the office afterward and when I looked there was his card as a clan member and he had put his pistol in the basket. Welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Hello, good people, and welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. It is a joy and a pleasure to have you join us today here on episode number 34, where we are talking to Dr. Phil Amerson, the President Emeritus of Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, and Indiana Bishop Julius Tremble. My name is Brad Miller, pastor of a local church in Indianapolis, and my mission here on the United Methodist People Podcast is to help to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. You can check out past episodes of the podcast at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. In today's episode, Phil Amerson, Dr. Phil Amerson, and Bishop Tremble get into a discussion about matters of Black Lives Matters, of social justice, of integrity, of teaching and speaking about racism, institutional leadership, urban community development, and the role of congregations in the United Methodist Church to address poverty and discrimination. We talked to Dr. Amerson about his early faith development, about his growing up in a United Methodist home, about attending uh, many, many uh, revivals and such, about his trans, uh, uh, transformative experience he had in serving in seminary days in, uh, in Harlem and in Panama, which really adjusted his thinking towards matters of social justice, and that was lived out then in a life of ministry in creative urban ministries like Patchwork Central in Evansville, Indiana, uh, urban cities, uh, urban ministries in the inner city of Indianapolis at Broadway Church, and then also in ministry as a seminary president at Claremont School of Theology and at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. 
uh, Dr. Amison and Mr. Trimble helped lead us in a conversation about listening and learning and understanding that we have to have a breakthrough in these matters in order to take action after we are listening. And we're not always hearing the words that people say. So we have a great discussion here. I invite you to, to, to tune in. There's a really fascinating conversation that Dr. Amazon has about his encounters with some members of one of his church who were, who were a part of the Ku Klux Klan uh, group and how a transformative uh, story took place there. Uh, Bishop uh, Tremble talks about his experiences as well and about how there are some points of hope among younger clergy and how they are looking to create uh, to create something new out of the chaos in our world and on our United Methodist Church. Uh, Bishop Trumbull reminds us to not waste the grace of the moment. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, back with you here on the United Methodist People podcast, where it is our mission to help to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary on the events that are happening in our world and we're glad to have with us for another episode of Being Encouraged with Bishop Julius Trimble, our Bishop of Indiana, Bishop Julius Trimble, and our special guest today on the podcast is Dr. Phil Amerson, who is the former president of Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and Claremont School of Theology in California and formerly pastor of Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis and First United Methodist Church in Bloomington, Indiana. And a connection that I have from a long time ago, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit here, is Patchwork Central in Evansville, Indiana, where I first got the new one. But we, we uh, Bishop and Dr. Amerson, welcome to the podcast here today. Great to be good with morning. you. Good morning, Brad, or good afternoon, depending upon when people listen to this podcast. But yes, good sir. to be with you and Phil. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Phil, it's good to have you on the podcast today. I mentioned that uh, Mike first became familiar with you when I was a student at University of Evansville, and you were involved with a ministry, a very unique ministry in many ways called Patrick Central, which spoke to the needs of, uh, of poverty and of people uh, in uh, difficult circumstances, and you spoke into that back then. And, and that's where I first came to know you in ministry, but I know your history goes back further th- than that. And before we get into some of the details here, I'd just like to hear a little bit about your story about how you came to faith in the first place and what led you in your course of ministry to where you're at now. Well, thank you, Brad. It's good to be with you. I'm a cradle Methodist. My uh, father was a pastor in the old uh, South Indiana Conference and then moved when I was uh, in college up to Northeast Ohio Conference. And uh, so I, I probably attended more revivals uh, between age uh, one and 14 than most people get to go uh, to in a lifetime. And uh, multiple times I uh, went forward and uh, renewed my confession of faith. And I actually went to college thinking I was going to be a medical doctor and uh, took all those courses, took the MedCat and uh, scored pretty well. Elaine, my wife, thought she was marrying a physician and then a wonderful guy at Meridian Street uh, Church, Hunter Soper, who was a physician, and he and Richard Ney started Operation Doctor in Africa, uh, which was a great program of this church, of, of the, our conference. And uh, Hunter Soper said, well, Phil, you're a, you're a junior in 
and college, headed to med school. Why don't you come uh, do rounds with me? And uh, suddenly my called medicine ended when I realized you spent all your time with sick people. Oh, you got a little dose of reality, I guess, huh? (laughs) That's right. Uh, So ended up uh, struggling through uh, the next several months. And some great folks, one of them comes to mind is Bob Lyon, who was a New Testament professor at Asbury Seminary, really mentored uh, me. And I ended up uh, going not only to Asbury College, but then on to Asbury Seminary. After that, uh, went to graduate school at Emory. Elaine and I, in the meantime, uh, while in seminary, spent uh, about six months in Harlem, working there, learning uh, a lot of new things from a couple of kids from the South and the Midwest. Uh, We didn't know much diversity, although I had been fortunate to go to Shortridge High School my senior year in high school, and that helped broaden my sense of the world. Then we went to Panama for a year and a half. And so you can imagine when I came back from Panama to my last year at Asbury Seminary, all the circuits had been sort of uh, blown open uh, <laughs> wow. after time in Harlem and time in Latin America. So God, looking back, I, 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 I'm not very good at seeing where God is leading me. I'm better looking back and seeing where God has led me. Okay. And uh, that, that was clear that God was uh, opening doors for me. Uh, to be uh, concerned about ministry with all people. Awesome. Awesome. And your ministry with all people has led you into uh, ministry in the academic world, where you have been a constant student and writer about uh, all things having to do with social justice and racism and poverty and urban ministries and how its relationship to suburban ministry. And that continues to now, and you live in retirement now in Bloomington, Indiana, but you continue to speak into this. And I mentioned how I first became familiar with you with a unique, at least in my experience, a unique ministry called Patchwork Central in Evansville. And I, I, I'm wondering, I, for whatever reason, I've been thinking about that a lot, given our current context of uh, the life and the world that we're in. Uh, what led you to go to do something like that in the first place, and how has that informed your mission and ministry moving forward? And if you could unpack that just a little bit there, if that's fair. Yeah, sure. Uh, quickly as possible. Elaine and I were teaching at Canberra School of Theology, uh, and I sort of thought I would spend the rest of my life in the academy. But I was increasingly struggling with, does what I'm saying on one side of the desk make any sense on the other side uh, with the students and, and ministry in the world? Uh, we had a dear friend, John Doyle, who was a pastor in Evansville. Uh, I know John, yeah. Yeah, great guy. Um, and uh, John, and then a couple of folks who were at Candler, the Kimbros, Calvin and Amelia, we began to pray together and talk together. And it was a time when there was this bubbling up of young evangelical folks who were doing community ministry. So that's when Jim Wallace was at Sojourners and Ron Sider was up uh, in Philadelphia and New Jerusalem community over in Cincinnati with uh, Richard Rohr. And so we ended up uh, landing in Evansville. The the sort of uh, driving question was, uh, will it play in Peoria? (laughs) Well, it will. It can work in big cities, but what about cities like Evansville? Uh, We got there. uh, Our kids attended Culver School and the first year, they announced the schools would be closed. 
and one thing led to another. We did a lot of organizing. Uh, we loved our school because it was, for our kids, uh, racially uh, mixed. Uh, about over half African-American at the time, a few Hispanic kids. And it was a great experience for our children. And then we find out they're going to close the school. So I remember one morning I heard that on the radio and I thought about all I had learned about the community and uh, this, that, and the other. And I rolled over and said to Elaine, uh, we were still in bed, you want to be elected to the school board? <laughs> and so uh, we ran a campaign and she was elected and served for eight years. Yes. A lot of a lot of activities there. You know, some of them we had micro lending that was going on. We had programs for children. One of the things that I've thought about a lot that I hadn't thought about uh, until the tragic uh, uh, situation with George Floyd and and uh, and Breonna Taylor uh, was we had a situation where the Klan came in to uh, the Near East side of Evansville because there'd been a couple of tragic situations with women, uh, a rape and, uh, or two. And, uh, what do we do about the Klan? And I reached out to a guy named, uh, Will Campbell, who worked a lot with the Klan in those days and, uh, asked for his help. And Will, uh, is the Cotton Patch Gospels guy? Cotton Patch Gospel will be done was yeah. the cartoon about him. Yes. I remember and that. Yeah. Will, Will, uh, let me tell my story. And then he said, well, what are the names of the clan members? Mm. And I said, you want me to know their names? Mm. He said, I want you to know them. Mm. And uh, we did, we got to meet one guy. And one story that uh, uh, another time, I'll write a, a, a longer piece about it, but a, a guy from Southern Illinois who was a clan member started worshiping with us. We had worship wow. Sunday evenings, and uh, it was an ecumenical service. Everybody was welcome. We would end with communion, and we would have an offering by having a basket on the table up by the communion, uh, and people would put in things. Children would bring drawings. People would bring bread they'd bake. They, they might put in a little money. And Warren, the young man who was a member of the Klan, one, uh, after he attended maybe two months, came and I heard him put something in the basket and it was heavy thud. And I took the offering back to office afterward. And when I looked, there was his card as a Klan member and he had put his pistol in the basket. Wow. Wow. And, so uh, kind of a yeah, turning, uh, 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 swords of the plowshares type of thing, if you, right, if you will. Right. And, and so that experience, and I'd like for you to forget and Bishop, for you jump in here as well, start speaking how that kind of thing speaks into the situation we're in right now. You know, we have a world in disarray. We uh, are in a world that, at least from my eye, is dramatically different. Some would say illuminated. Some would say, you know, a disastrous situation the last several months. Uh, I'd just like for you to speak in the situation we're in right now. How have things changed? How have they not changed? And how some of your experiences speaking into the situation we find ourselves in in our world situation right now? Well, I'll, I'll let Phil weigh in on this uh, from his perspective, but I think this is an opportunity for people to extend an invitation for people to actually change and to accept that. So the story that Phil just told, I mean, if the church is not providing an opportunity to place or, or the words 
or, or the challenge for people to actually invest in change and and, and then just really uh, hitting a pause button, uh, waiting for the temperature to go down uh, with the assumption that there's there's been uh, systematic change. Uh, so it doesn't matter whether, you know, Burger King or whatever changes the name of their big burger or something, or people are uh, putting Black Lives Matters on all kinds of uh, signage. I think it's more important that people take serious that this is uh, uh, anti-Blackness and, and uh, what we've experienced over these years of 400 years uh, requires real sy systematic change, systemic change, as well as people to people to say, what does it mean to really be a Christian? I, that's why I like the story uh, mm. Phil was just saying. What does it mean for us to be a Christian in this moment of history? It's got to be transformative in one form or another, or it can be destructive. It seems to me we have the choice whether we're going to dissolve into destructiveness or we're going to use this opportunity for out of chaos for something creative to happen. So Phil, what do you think? Is something creative happening or are we just in a spiral towards death here? Well, I think it's a moment when cre something creative can happen. Um, as you know, um, for, for a long time, the Indiana conferences had a high commitment to civil rights. And then for, for understandable reasons, we uh, worried about congregational development and other things. But I'm hearing more now across the conference about commitment to change, and I'm encouraged by that. And I think it matches the mood going on in the country. And black lives, you know, we, we've got to be strong and say black lives do matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I teasingly said in a blog I wrote recently, uh, sometimes when I hear people say, don't all lives matter, I think about Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's saying, blessed are the poor, and a couple of well-fed guys, well-dressed guys in the back said, but Jesus, don't all people matter? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, there's a reason Black Lives Matter. Of course, all people matter. Hmm. But not all people have faced a systemic uh, injustice. And so, yes, there's an opening now. And I think the church can play an important role in helping bring change. I think, Brad, I think Brad, there's actually, you know, signs of a sea change because uh, I spent 20 years in Cleveland, as you as you probably know. And and to hear Terry Francona or other people talk about, yeah, I think, you know, we need to actually remove the name of the, in, the Cleveland Indians. About a year ago, my son was reminded they removed Wahoo, but we were for 18 years protesting with Native Americans around that. And, and when I heard the story from a pastor who was Native American and had a child who said, you know, how, how do we reconcile this as Christians and United Methodists? And there was a lot of an indictment around really the silence of the church around racism. Uh, and I, so, so to see, uh, see these kinds of uh, things happening at this moment uh, of course, we need to also see that in the boardrooms, not just uh, at the ballpark. But um, uh, I think I think we are at a moment of, of uh, transformative change, and, and we need good theologians at this moment too. So I'm mm -hmm. glad Brad and Phil are on the call right now. I'm counting no. on both of you. <laughs> well, awesome, awesome. Well, I it's, it's I, a time we're going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, too, messiness and uh, uncomfortability, and that's all a part of conversion. You know? 
I love what you're saying there. We're going to be uncomfortable, but sometimes the discomfort comes from listening to things we don't necessarily want to hear or like to hear, but we have to uh, go through the difficult circumstances of intentional listening. And so, uh, in fact, I hear this from my, you know, my own children from time to time, dad, you need to listen more and so on and so forth. And I, I get that, but I got to hear it time and time again. I noticed that the, uh, your blog post, uh, Phil, about your banner you have at your uh, apartment, white silence equals white consent, black lives matter, uh, banner you have there at your place. The, I'm interested also in the, in the silence part. How do we be good listeners to listening to the things that we not necessarily want to hear, but also uh, speak into it, speak into the, the situation. I just like to have a conversation with me about listening and speaking truth. Oh my, that's um, well. Let let me go here. One of the things when we got to Evansville, I'm going to go back to Patchwork. Uh, we decided we decided uh, we weren't going to do anything for a year. We were going to spend the year getting to know the community, a poor inner city neighborhood. And in that time, one of the remarkable things that God did was I'm walking down the street one day and I bump into a woman, Jocelyn Thomas. And Jocelyn was a, a wonderful woman from Cleveland, a brilliant woman. She'd been a Fulbright scholar. I didn't know that for two years. Mm. Uh, and she uh, began to worship at St. John Church, where I was pastoring, and had the call to ministry, ended up uh, going to uh, Candler on a honors scholarship, and then a PhD at Vanderbilt, tragically. And when I get to the other side, I've got some questions for the good Lord. There you go. And one of them is why Jocelyn's life was taken so soon. She was one of the best preachers I ever knew. But had I not listened and been watching for that neighborhood, I would have never met her. She did graduate from seminary, came in for a while, was on the staff at Broadway Church in Indianapolis before she went to do her PhD. Um, I did my research uh, before going to Patchwork on racism in the United States. And my dis- dissertation was Suburban Congregations and Strategies for Change. We worked in six cities, uh, Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles, the Bay Area, Chicago, maybe it's seven cities, South Bend and Indianapolis were the last two. And I learned there something I didn't want to hear. And that was the worst way to try to address racial bigotry was to preach a sermon. (laughs) There you go. And the second worst way was to teach a class about it. Mm. Now, I'm not saying don't preach and don't teach. I'm saying don't only do that. Yes. What we learned was if you had people that listened to others and worked on other projects with people of different racial background and then preached the sermon, you could see change. So a lot of what's happened to us is we've gotten in our enclaves, our racial enclaves, and we don't know one another. We don't know the burdens that people carry. We don't know the dilemmas they face, the bigotries they face. And I could tell you lots of stories, some of them from Indianapolis and some from South Bend. But we've got to listen, but we also have to act. But 
we shouldn't get the cart in front of the horse in terms of thinking I'm going to go fix everything until we understand the depth of the problem. And we, as they, as the saying goes, walk in someone else's shoes. Yeah. Having said that, what do you think are some of the, I'll address this to really both you, Phil and Bishop. What are some of the things you think that uh, particular white folks are not hearing still that we need to be hearing that can be impactful moving forward? I think one of the things is that I still see or, or many white folks holding on to the notion that there's a there's a middle ground. You know, you can be a, a non-racist. I think that I think folks are either racist or, or anti-racist, essentially. Uh, so I, I think but some people, you know, want to hold on to the fact that, hey, I'm a good Christian, which may all be well and true. Um, and that. And I, I might even push back a little bit on what Phil said. I think listening is important and conversations is, conversations are critical. But, uh, you know, progress comes primarily as a result of demand. And so what we're seeing now in Black Lives Matter and, 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 and in political circles as well, in some political circles at least, is the demand for, for change. So while we are having conversations and listening, uh, they're, they're, you know, persons are pushing for that to happen. So I, I think, you know, that's part of the uncomfortable piece. If you have someone told you you only had a choice of being a, a, a racist or a non-racist, that might be a pretty difficult challenge. Yeah. And I think that's kind of maybe where we are at this moment in history. And, um, I, think you're, I think you're speaking to the rationalization that a lot of folks have to somehow another weekend figure this out and have our, you know, have our Confederate flag moments and other uh, all lives matter moments and somehow navigate this where you got to have a conversion. You know, it's a conversion is not 50%. You're not a 50% a Christian, you know, you're hundred percent or not in the way I look at it. And we have to have that conversion. I think we're still struggling with that. We've narrowed racism down to an individual attitude. And it's so much more than that. Oh, absolutely. It, it allows white people to say, well, I don't have a bad attitude. Well, it's not just your attitude. As, uh, as Ibram Kendi writes in that wonderful book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, it's both actions and attitudes uh, that have to change. And, and the systemic power of both is, is what's so critical. One of my concerns right now, Brad, in, around how we think about this theologically is I see a lot of my younger friends rushing to do justice. And a wise New Testament professor once said to me, back when I was doing the anti-war stuff, you know justice through God's righteousness and not the other way around. And theologically, we've got to begin with seeking God's righteousness, I think. And that's part of what listening is. For me, uh, I I can pretty quickly say, well, it's not fair or whatever. But is my response rooted in God's righteousness, uh, the kingdom of God, the realm of God? Uh, that's just a little side, sure. but but I get I get a little uneasy with people who very quickly know what justice is. Oh my goodness! Well, and of course, it seems to me we're starting to move a little bit in our conversation towards the frame well the uh, the institution or the framework of which 
we have lived most of our lives in the United Methodist Church. And I assume that some of the people you're referring to are clergy or active church folks. Uh, what are we going to do in our church in terms of really speaking to these issues, United Methodist Church? You know, kind of, I just like to feel your uh, take on the state of the church right now and what is our role, what is our place in speaking to these issues of Black Lives Matter, a corrupt uh, or a non functioning political system, a uh, system of uh, where, uh, where sexual preferences are not respected in many cases all kinds of things of this nature. What is the role? What's the state of our church in doing this? And uh, maybe reflect a little bit some of these people you've been talking to. Well, in some ways, I'm the least uh, informed about some of this. Um, I try to read and talk with friends across the denomination. Um, I really, as I said earlier, I'm encouraged that in several of our districts here in Indiana, uh, district superint- uh, conference superintendents have reached out to hold conversations with clergy and lay people. Uh, and it's more than conversations. I've been involved in two of them now. And in both of them, it very, fairly quickly gets to the, the matter of uh, addressing the, the myth. The great myth across Indiana is, well, there aren't any different, diver, there's no diversity in my county. Mm. Uh, there's no diversity nearby. Well, you look at the map, and it's true, there's some uh, counties that may only have 4 or 5% of non-white people of color. But it's amazing how when you talk then with the lay people, they say, oh, yeah. Well, there are those uh, people who pick our crops and who can yes. our foods and who work in our kitchens. And, oh, yeah, there's that uh, black man that I see at the grocery store every week. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's one piece. But the other encouraging thing is people on their own seem to say, wait a minute, maybe I need to meet up with another congregation that's different than mine. And maybe it's not even a United Methodist congregation. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful there around that. Um, in terms of the larger uh, denomination, it seems to me there's there's a book I reread uh, a couple weeks ago uh, entitled uh, "Broken Churches, Broken Nation" by C.C. Goen. He was a professor at Wesley Seminary, and he tells the story of the breakup of the Methodist Episcopal Church back in the 1840s, uh, 30s, and 40s. And you read it some places and you think, my goodness, it's just happening again. Wow. All the splintering that's going on and the division that ended up being the ME South uh, and the Methodist Episcopal Church. So I see the splintering, Brad. Yeah. Now, the one place of hope I should mention, uh, there's a group that sort of emerged. uh, I'm not sure how it happened, but it's got a lot of the actors that I think are going to make a difference. And it's brand new. It's a group called Out of Chaos Creation. Yes, I saw, I don't know much about it, to be honest with you. I did see something come across my uh, email here recently about that. Uh, if you don't mind, say more about that, because what 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 out of that group, even if it's, even if it's just the players, maybe Bishop, you can speak to this too, gives you some hope for at least some direction out of this chaos that we find ourselves in. Well, the players include people from central conferences, the players include people that uh, are gay. Uh, the players include uh, people from the North and the South. 
very wise people. I read their theological statement, and it's well-rooted uh, in good, what I think, theology. And when I see Jay Brim, uh, a lawyer from Texas, and Jay Williams, uh, an African-American Harvard Divinity graduate in Boston, uh, both in the same group, I'm thinking, hey, <laughs> I'm going to pay attention here. At least a uh, chance. Uh, we got a chance. Yeah, I, huh? and, and, what and there are a lot of other good people I won't mention. It, but the nice thing is they've got people from the Philippines. They've got people from Africa involved in the conversation. They're doing a lot of, we're back to this listening. Tomorrow morning, as a matter of fact, we're taping this uh, on the 6th of July, but on the 7th of July will be the first of their web uh, webinars. Yes, I plan and to be on have, that. They're going to have several others. So uh, right now they're listening. And I, I think our hope was that the protocol process that was announced in January might have might have solved things. And then I think the coronavirus and all the changes may have called our future finding a nice uh, compromise or way to go forward is more in jeopardy. But I see yeah. this group as giving us a way forward. So there was kind of siloed groups, uh, right? West Wesleyan Covenant Association, and on one side maybe UM Next, and another one, and uh, those they're still there, right? Those organizations, and so I'm not sure where we're heading right now. And Bishop, you might want to speak to this as well, but. Is this, is this year of pause, is this going to help us? Is it going to hurt us? Is What's going to happen here between now and September of next year? Where, where are we at, Bishop, on this? I, well, well, I've been praying that uh, it's, not, it's not the efforts of, uh, of individuals and smart people getting together. Uh, my grandfather taught me that smart people can always find a reason not to do the right thing. So you can get <laughs> okay. a lot of smart people. I've been in the church long enough to know that they're, you know, and, and I've been a part of a lot of different groups and conversations. So I, I, I want to go back just for a moment to when when, when uh, Phil talked about seeking righteousness first. I think this is a, a point where we can really test our Wesleyan theology. So, I mean, if, in our pursuit of holiness, does our pursuit of holiness really lead to a, uh, to a, a, a real live sense of a commitment to justice? So we've had some good statements. If you look at the statement that the Council of Bishops came out, I, in 2015, we were in Germany, and I was part of a writing team uh, to work on a statement. This was after Michael Brown or one of the shootings then. And uh, one of the things we found how difficult it was, was to speak as a church that, uh, with a global perspective. So, so, so what is what was an emergency for African Americans in 2015 wasn't was not embraced totally. But after George Floyd, you know, they were protests in Syria. We talked about this, Brad. Right? Can you imagine living in Syria, dodging bombs, and you've got people protesting the uh, the, the murder of George Floyd? So, I, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, I, I'm, I just wrote down out of chaos creation. I'll look look that up and see. Uh, some of the names, uh, uh, you know, I, I like I like their blogs and what they write. So that might be a sign of hope. I'm really praying and trusting that God is, and we can see this right now, that God is actually change, transforming the world. And I think the question is, I, I want to be on the right side of that. I want to be on the right side of what God is. Uh, <laughs> That'd be a good side to be on, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to be, you know, you can pick your, diff your group here, your group there. 
and, and quite frankly, I, I know that I cannot be a bishop of a church that's not willing to be anti-racist, and I can't be a bishop of a church or, you know, or a conference that decides that there's certain people that really cannot be part of the conference. So I know there's some people who already kind of weighed in on, you know, they want a church that's so progressive that if you're, if you're a traditionalist, there would be no room for you or a, 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 a church that's so heterosexual that if you were not heterosexual, there'd be no room for you. So, but, but, but I think there's a lot of United Methodists and I'm not, a, I, I guess I am a cradle United Methodist. I'm not the son of a preacher, uh, but, uh, but who, who just see themselves as, Hey, I'm part of this church in my own family. If, if the church were to split, I'd have to split. Some of my, my family members would be splitting. So, so um, I'm looking for God and I see signs of it all the time, uh, Brad. Uh, that's one of the benefits and blessings of being a bishop is you, you get to see so many things that you. Well, let, well let's go, let's, let's, let's go there for a minute, Bishop. What are some of these signs that you're seeing either among clergy or churches or interactions you're having? What are some well, of the signs you're seeing? See, is people still answering the call to ministry? I mean, and right now, people are still expressing whether, whether it's the conference superintendents or even in this time where we haven't been meeting. Uh, I see transformation in my own children uh, 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 in terms of their com- their commitment to Christ now and their their commitment to changing the transforming the world. Uh, two who are United Methodists and one who's who uh, does a, tends a progressive Baptist church in D.C. So. Uh, I see I, I, I do I see signs in the preaching uh, some local pastors that, that that some of the superintendents have said hey Bishop you need to see this and uh, I think maybe five ten years ago you never would have heard the kind of preaching um, uh, that, that I've heard I see signs in some of the things that I've heard from lay people uh, around their commitment that they don't want they don't want to see um, uh, both our nation or our church, uh, uh, be drifting, and and I think uh, whether it's from the White House to the State House to to your house, mm-hmm. uh, everybody is I think open and eager uh, to really experience. Uh, that's that's also what you're saying about the we don't want to be adrift, so we need direction. But you're seeing some direction from young people being called in the ministry still. That kind of leads me to a question I really wanted to get to you with Phil, and it has to do with the. Uh, education, seminary education, and the state of that. There's a lot of uh, angst in that world, as I know there's, and uh, everything we're talking about here. You've spent a considerable amount of time as a seminary president at Claremont and Garrity Evangelical. Where, If we have these people that Bishop Hussain are called to the ministry, uh, what role and purpose is seminary serving now? Where do we stand on that? And how is that going to serve some of these conversations we're having here now about when we send these folks to the churches and situations and ministries to speak into the world here? Listen and speak. Well, I, uh, I have thought a lot in recent weeks about the old uh, Greek myth of the ship of Theseus, the puzzle of that ship of Theseus. Uh, and, Quickly, what it is, is uh, Theseus owns a ship, and they come into harbor every few uh, months, and they replace a board on the ship. And the puzzle is, when every board on the ship has been replaced, is it the same ship? Mm. Okay. And um, I think we need to 
recognize that we didn't get into this dilemma or as the United Methodist Church overnight. Slowly, boards were replaced, planks were replaced on the ship. And I could name a number of them. <laughs> Some of them, I think, were positive, but in my experience, there have been a lot of negative ones. We moved away, for instance, of being a church that, that openly welcomed pacifists in our discipline. Uh, that's really where the whole language of incompatible with Christian teaching originated. Okay. And then it got moved over to homosexuality. We moved away from, uh, as I've said, uh, being anti-racist as blatantly, as openly, as honestly. Uh, I've done something the bishop knows about in the last uh, two weeks. I've been collecting anti-racism behaviors in Indiana uh, since 1950, from 1950 to 2000, I stopped at 10 pages of wonderful experiences. But it's clear we didn't do as much of that from 2000 until maybe Bishop Trimble came. Okay. And I think we've been replacing the boards. Mm. And so it's, it's which direction do we want this ship to go and what, what uh, boards will carry us? Seminaries? we replaced uh, a commitment to United Methodist education with, oh, you can go most anywhere. We'll figure it out. We replaced elders with, let's use local pastors. Oh, a part-time local pastor will do. And I think they're great. As you know, I headed the course of study school here. Yes. But my, my tragic reality was many of those dear men and women uh, didn't do their education. And so the ship of Theseus analogy, we've replaced a lot of planks that said, this is who we are as United Methodists, with planks that said, this is who we are to get along in, in the community where we have churches. Is, now, the, is the result a leaky boat here? Is that what we're talking about? Well, the result, yeah, I, th I don't know. I don't want to carry the analogy too far, okay. but I do know We've got a, we've got, we've had too many places where churches stopped being United Methodists. Mm. They were rebaptizing. They were refusing to baptize infants. Uh, we we stopped. Uh, we stopped calling. Here's the irony. I'm seen as a liberal, but I don't think there's anybody believes in the conversion of the heart more than I do. Yeah. I've seen it with my own two eyes. Of course. I've seen people course. who've been born again and and dramatically changed. Yeah. But we've sort of given up on that. So if, if that's what you mean by a leaky boat, yeah, I think we've got to reclaim uh, the power of metanoia, of change for ourselves, not just for others. How will we change? Yeah. Well, doesn't our, uh, our um, mission statement as a church that we are here for the transformation of the world? And that starts with an adherence to personal transformation well, that's one first of the boards, that's one of the boards that changed that was changed i wouldn't want really okay. that is to focus on discipleship as an individualistic kind of thing yes and our our seminarians by the way to get more to your question it broke my heart year after year to watch young seminarians take an mdiv degree and then say i'm not going to be ordained hmm and one young woman said it best. I mean, she just it took my breath away. I was so sad. She said, I don't know that I can trust the church with my vocation. Wow. And well, that's, thought, that's, 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 that's exactly the dilemma. Now, I think Bishop's right 
we've got a lot of youngsters now that are going ahead with their vocation and speaking truth as powerfully as they can. And, uh, and they're finding their own pathway, which is not always the pathway we see exactly. as being most helpful, but it is their own pathway because they are seeing the reality of the church that they are looking at. <laughs> they are facing the reality, and the reality is a career based in an area and a, and a world and a structure that in many ways goes against them. And it's chaotic. And I know we're up on time probably, but yes. part of what's going on is the WCA is already crafting out where their seminaries will be. Yes. And I don't know if you saw, but Billy Abraham's going to Baylor to start a new house of Methodist studies. Nobody has to tell me much more than that. That's <laughs> going to be a WCA school. Yeah, of course. Of and course. United is going to be a WCA school. They've been pushing in that direction for a while. And I'm, I'm just brokenhearted by that. Yeah, the best students we had were the when the evangelicals and the so-called progressives got to know one another and love one another. That's what seminary education ought to be. End yes. of sermon. Well, <laughs> let me then take one more shift with you, Phil, because I always like to kind of come around to this. And Bishop touched on it a minute ago when he said a point of hope for him was, you know, was the vision of the young people, and that led us to the seminary education piece. But I'd like your take, Phil, on what are signs of hope right now in our world, but particularly in our United Methodist Church. What are signs of hope? What are directions we're going that are going to help us guide us through this chaos? Well, I, the bishops already said this. I hear some creative preaching, great, courageous preaching. I'm encouraged by that. Mark Feldmeyer out at uh, St. Andrew in Highland Ranch, Colorado. If I can hear him, if I don't hear him preach on a Sunday, I've missed something special. Mm. Uh, Michael Mather, who's now at Boulder First Church, I heard him preach yesterday. Man, he gave the word. Uh, th- there, there are there are great, great preachers around. Uh, Jen Stolpe Gibbs up at uh, Castleton, she's a preacher. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So, so that gives me hope. Uh, some of these groups that are trying to uh, do more than just represent one small clan in our tribe that expand the horizons so that we can see a larger church. And I'm, I'm encouraged outside the United Methodist Church. Yes. God's going to do his, his work no matter. <laughs> no matter what we do to try to mess it up, right? Anything we do. Or no matter how many planks of that boat we try That's to right. switch right. around. Well, Bishop, what kind of final words of encouragement or prayer or thoughts or scriptures or anything? What do you have to share with us here? Well, uh, well I tell you, I, I'm, I'm encouraged and hopeful because – uh, Brad, Phil, and all three of us were still alive. So, yes. Here uh, we are. No, no, yes. no, no. And I'm not saying this to be facetious or, 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 or uh, we're, you know, 31% of African Americans know someone personally who's died from the COVID. Um, uh, right now, I have a cousin who's a doctor in Los Angeles who's hospitalized, uh, African American. Uh, so, so the fact that we're alive right now today gives me hope. The second thing Phil just said is, you know, I've never, I've always known that the church is of God. I mean, look, I'm a bishop. You know, look, Phil, no, he could tell us. The fact that a Julius Trimble, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I was an average student in high school and college and was accepted at Garrett as a, as a, as a provisionary student, Brad. I got smarter the longer I was in school, Brad. There you go. So don't, don't you, you were brilliant when I knew you there, my man. <laughs> So, so, but I, so the fact that we're alive, we are going to die. We don't talk about this a lot, 
And so, so I'm hopeful because I want to spend, uh, I'm in the last quarter, Brad, you're, you're a little bit younger than Phil and I, and Phil's a little bit, maybe, I don't know if we're the same age or not. No, I'm way older. Okay, so, but, <laughs> but we're in the last quarter then. If you're, yeah, if you're, yeah. me, you're in the last quarter. But, you know, my mom's 98, so I could be, I could, you don't know how long I'm going to be. So, so I don't want to wait, as I, I, I wrote articles years when I was in Iowa, I don't want to waste this grace, you know. And so, so I'm, I'm, you know, my wife would say, you know, might say he's, I'm a company man, so to speak. I'm a United Methodist through and through, and I see the glass is half full. But I'm, I'm not dependent solely on the ingenuity uh, or, or the wisdom of the Council of Bishops or any, any new group because I really do believe the church is of God and, and, and therefore will be, will, will, be, uh, will be here until the end of time, will be preserved until the end of time. So, you know, the United Methodist Church might be smaller, might be different. You know, I'm not, I'm not fretting about that. Uh, um, and, and I think that these kinds of podcasts and the kind of conversations, people need to be given space uh, uh, for their faith and for their fear, for their questions and for their doubts, um, and for their gifts and for their graces. So, you know, I was talking to uh, a young lady who's not United Methodist, uh, she, who, who said, listen, you know, everybody doesn't want to spend, the, spend a, too much time on the struggle bus. Mm, yeah. uh, so some people really, <laughs> really want to say, hey, this is what I'm going to commit my life to, and, and this is what I'm committing my life to. So, uh, I'm, I'm encouraging people with the love of Jesus Christ to rise to their highest potential. And I don't think you should miss any part of that. Love, Jesus Christ, highest potential, and all people. And I say that, I encourage all people with the love of Jesus Christ to rise to their highest potential. And, and I remember someone coming to the church I was serving in Cleveland, and we had this welcome song, Brad. The Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. And so the, the, this was a church specialist on church growth field. And he said, he said, that, that, that song is kind of corny, kind of, you know, he said, but you all sing it like you really mean it. <laughs> How about that? What a, what a concept. Yeah. Hey, if, if it was working for us, I said, you know, we, we, we're welcoming everybody in this church. You know, we, we like, uh, uh, we, we, someone, we had a person join. He was a former Presbyterian. He said, pastor, you know, you, you letting Pres Presbyterians, I said, listen, we welcome the Presbyterians, the vegetarians, the parliamentarians, <laughs> even the contrarians. And, you know, we got a lot of contrarians in Indiana. So, sure. so we give thanks to God for uh, making a church big enough for all of us. Um, you know, as, as cute as we are, as smart as we are, we're not all that in a bag of chips, as they say. That's we're right. Awesome. To God. awesome. Right. Thank you, sir. Bless us all. Thank you so much to Dr. Phil Amerson, the now retired uh, former president of Garrity Evangelical Theological Seminary, who really spoke a word into our conversation here today about listening and about understanding what our place is to in this confused world that we're in right now and how things are changing rapidly. I hope you picked up on one thing I wanted to pick up on with you, my good listeners, was the story that he told about the ship of Theseus and about how this, uh, this, this myth about the ship which every board and plank was replaced while the ship was sailing and how 
Does, did that mean at the end of the, the voyage, is it a completely different ship? Or because it has a similar purpose, is it the same ship? It reminds me of the analogy some people have used about sometimes the confusion of our times is like trying to build an airplane like you're flying it. There is no doubt that we live in a confusing, dramatic time, socioeconomically with the COVID virus, with a Black Lives Matter and issues of social justice and political upheaval in our world. The church needs to continue to speak into that. And I hope you heard the word that uh, that Bishop Trimble gave, that there is great hope in the church and understanding that we have young people who are still here in the call of ministry and looking to make a difference and an impact. And there's prophetic words being spoken, including by some folks who are creating movements about creating something new, creation out of chaos. Our point here, here at the United Methodist People podcast, is to keep the conversation going. I truly believe that we are here to strengthen the connection, however things evolve in our church, through conversation and commentary. We must keep listening and talking, but not, but talking as our conversation was today after we have been good listeners. My hope and prayer is that you listen to the words of today of Phil Amerson, of Dr. Phil Amerson and Bishop Julius Trimble, and they spoke into your life and we are good listeners in order to speak a prophetic word to our congregations and to our world. You can always listen to back episodes of the United Methodist People podcast at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. We're here to serve you. My name is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, and I want to leave you today with an interesting and good word from John Wesley. Here's the quote. In a storm, I think, what if the gospel be not true, then thou art of all men most foolish. For what hast thou given up thy goods, thy ease, thy friends, thy reputation, thy country, thy life? John Wesley. Blessings, good people. Until next time, do all the good you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. And always do all the good you can.